First Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 3, it says, Paul writes to Timothy, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he's proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. The chapter has included instructions so far between masters and slaves, or what we might think of as employees and employers in verses 1 and 2, towards false teachers in verses 3 through 5, and then Paul is going to instruct Timothy about the issues of money and and godliness in verses 6 through 19. Paul wants Timothy to keep both the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in the church that is in Ephesus, and the message of the gospel, pure. I can't stress this enough. Other than the reality that Jesus is the living Lord of heaven who saves you from your your sins, maybe the single most important sentence I'm going to say tonight is that the Lord wants the ministry and the message pure. And this is why he's going to instruct us about this issue of false teachers. Paul returns to this subject for the third time. For those of you who have been following along in our study in 1 Timothy, you'll remember that he talks about false teachers in chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Then again in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And now here. Paul warns Timothy that false teachers embrace a different doctrine, speculate about useless information, rather than focus on godly edification. False teachers place fruitless and empty discussion above love and personal ambition above truth. The false teacher abandons sound teaching For false teaching in verse 3. The false teacher is proud in verse 4. And has an unhealthy preoccupation with controversial questions in verse 4. Which is evidence of a corrupt mind destitute of the truth in verse 5. False teachers often use their positions for personal financial enrichment. They equate godliness with wealth in verse 5. And so Timothy is told to steer clear of these charlatans. The text says, from such withdraw yourself. And so some people might come up to this particular passage of scripture and say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why, why should we worry about what people teach? Shouldn't we be more concerned about the unity of the body? Paul will refute the lie that doctrine doesn't matter. 
Paul is going to remind us that what you believe and teach will inevitably determine how you're going to live your life. People who reject healthy, read true, teaching will embrace, here's their choices. People will embrace what is true and healthy or they will embrace what is not true and not healthy. You've got to understand that if you embrace what is not true and not healthy, it's going to eventually hurt you. The false teacher has to be identified and then dealt with. And so Paul's warnings are given at such a time that apparently false teachers had once again arisen in the church in Ephesus. Now remember, Paul is writing these words to Timothy, who has oversight of the churches at Ephesus. And again, those of you who are somewhat familiar with the New Testament, remember in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, when Paul was getting ready to, to leave, he warned the elders in, in Ephesus, be on your guard, he said, for yourselves and for all the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in. Even then, Paul said, they're going to come to you. You don't have to go to them. They're going to come to you. They're going to find you. They're going to reach out to you. He says, they will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for three years, I didn't cease to admonish each one with tears, unquote. He pleaded with them. And so it begins in verse 3 where Paul says, If anyone teaches otherwise, does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness. Remember, he's already talked about the warnings about slaves and masters concerning what constitutes what's right and what's wrong. If anyone teaches otherwise. Look at the opening part of the passage the first few words, there's nothing in this that we can ignore. The first words, it says, if anyone teaches otherwise. You know why that's important? Anyone is capable of being a false teacher. Anyone. It can happen to anyone. Anyone is capable of leading others astray. Anyone is capable of being at first mistaken and then perhaps deceived. One of the tragedies is that anyone is capable of leading other people astray. And so tragically, false teachers aren't rare. They're common. We don't have to look far to find them. They'll come to your door. They'll knock on your door. They'll say, hi, I'm with the Jehovah Witnesses, or I'm with the Watchtower and Track Society. They'll ride up on a bike with a 
glowing white shirt and a wonderful tie, kind of a cheesy bike, but they'll come and they will knock on your door and they will invite you to go to their church. And they'll invite you to believe what they believe. So what makes a false teacher a false teacher? The false teacher teaches a different doctrine. If anyone teaches otherwise. And does not consent to wholesome words. The false teacher teaches in the text it says hetero, didaskaleai. It's a great big word. In short, it means something different from what we're teaching. In short order, Paul is going to identify three characteristics of false teachers. And he's going to begin by the content of their teaching. He basically says, number one, the false teacher promotes and defends false teaching. This isn't about a person being confused. This isn't about a person who's mistaken about something. This is someone who will promote and then defend something that's false. Number two, the false teacher abandons sound instructions from the Lord Jesus. And number three, the false teacher disagrees with godly teaching. So when Paul uses that interesting word here in verse 3, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent, this word too is utterly important in understanding the point that Paul is trying to make. The word con consent is actually a compound Greek word. It's the, it's the word proserkomei. It's a, it's a word that means to approach, but it carries with it the idea of attaching oneself to. And so in this case, it means to connect or attach to wholesome words. And so when he says in verse 3, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words... Here's the idea. They refuse to attach themselves. They refuse to connect themselves to the wholesome words. These are the words of the Lord Jesus. This is the doctrine which accords to godliness. So the false teacher finds a way to refuse to disconnect the words of Jesus to themselves, This becomes so utterly important. And he uses the word wholesome. And you know that word. We've already studied it in chapter 1, verse 10. Paul uses the word wholesome. It's a word that's used in the ancient world of, of health. It comes from a borrowed word, hygieneo. You know that word. We get the word hygiene from it. When you think of hygiene, when you think of being hygienic, you think of something that's clean, not just sterile, but wholesome and healthy. And so Paul uses that word healthy, wholesome, wholeness regularly is translated in chapter 1 verse 10 and elsewhere, sound. 
but, he, but sound, when you use the expression sound in mind and in body, it, it means that there's nothing diseased or there's nothing wrong. And so it speaks of health. So in one sense, the word is a medical term. But now it's applied to words. So the teachings of Jesus should lead to wholesome, healthy beliefs about Jesus, about the human condition, about the nature of God, about what it means to be saved. So here's the idea. It's a type of a belief that's going to result in a healthy way of living. And so the false teacher doesn't simply teach false doctrine, but disconnects the words of Jesus and the teaching that promotes righteous behavior. Here, godliness. So what does all this mean? The false teacher denies the identity of Jesus, the message of Jesus, as it's represented in the New Testament. The false teacher denies the righteousness that's revealed in Christ and is unwilling to separate himself or herself from the world or the flesh. It would appear that one or both of these things are the reason that the false teacher doesn't submit or commit to the wholesome words of Jesus but rather introduces unwholesome doctrine in order to justify their teachings or their perverse behavior or their wicked way of life. You'll recall that Paul wrote at the beginning of, of 1 Timothy in chapter 1, verse 3, instruct certain people not to teach any different doctrine, not to occupy themselves with myths, and endless genealogies, unquote. In this verse, the word different doctrine, and in the opening chapter, or here, teaches otherwise, and in the opening chapter, different doctrine, Paul uses the exact same word, hetero, didaskalei. It means essential doctrine. Any teaching that denies the essentials of the, the gospel, anything that denies the essentials as it's represented in the Bible, becomes suspect. So Paul will enlarge the idea of false doctrine to include the specific instructions of Jesus. And then he's going to link it to ungodly living. One commentator says, quote, any teaching different from the sound instruction of the gospel of Christ is false teaching. The Greek word for sound could be translated healthy. Such instruction is life-giving. Some commentators believe that at least one of the Gospels, perhaps Luke, may have already been in circulation, allowing believers access to sound instruction in written form. In any case, those teachings have been preserved orally and were constantly taught to the believers. And so Paul is sitting here going, We've told you over and over again. Timothy has told you over and over again. We've recounted to you the stories that are contained in the Gospels. And again, I suspect that this is correct. That, that Luke has already been written. Mark is still down the road. 
John's gospel is still down the road, but now a written record is beginning to form so that people can evaluate what is being said in light of what the, the scripture has taught. So Paul's concern is that the false teachers have taught something different from what Jesus has, has taught and what Jesus has demonstrated. And so the false teacher's error isn't simply in teaching something different than what Jesus taught. It's their unwillingness to agree with Jesus. To agree with Jesus in his character. Can you imagine coming up to Jesus and say, you know, Jesus, I just disagree with you. See, you, you, you laugh at the absurdity of the, of the notion. But, but, but imagine it's quite easy for you to do it if you don't believe that he's God, that he's the living Lord of the universe, that he is God who came and acquired a second nature, a human nature. If you are willing to discount what Jesus says and then discount what Jesus does then you can find an excuse to do almost anything. So false teachers not only break with orthodoxy, that's right belief, they'll also break with orthopraxy, that's right behavior. So Paul doesn't paint a picture of a person who unintentionally misses the point on a minor matter. He's talking about a person who gets the most basic and fundamental doctrines wrong. And so Paul is going to paint a picture of a person who's evil and twisted and corrupt. C.S. Lewis wrote, quote, Christians believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God because he said so. It's not because I said so. It isn't even because of Peter, James, and John, although they all did say so. God calls Jesus God. Jesus calls himself God. Peter calls him God. Paul calls him God. John calls him God. I had a radio caller from Highlands Ranch, and I think his name was Steve, and he goes, I said, Steve from Highlands Ranch, and he goes, Jesus isn't God. And I said, in Hebrews, God calls him God. In John, God, John calls him God. In, in Romans, Paul calls him God. But Stephen Highlands Ranch says he's not God. So just for purposes of discussion, who would you go with if you were me? J.N.D. Anderson writes, quote, he said that he was in existence before Abraham, and he was Lord of the Sabbath. He claimed to forgive sins. He continually identified himself in his work, his person, and his glory with the one he termed his heavenly father. He accepted men's worship. He said that he was to be the judge of men on the last day and that their eternal destiny depended on their attitude toward him, unquote. Who else made these kinds of claims? 
Who else could say something so incredible? No one. Martin Luther said, quote, anything that one imagines of God apart from Christ is only useless thinking and vain idolatry, unquote. So when a person says to me, in my opinion, the Bible's false, I say, good for you. Have you read the Bible? Of course. Okay, there's 66 books in the Bible. Here's $20. I'll give you this $20 if you can name the theme of just one of the books. I'm not saying 10 of the books or even five of the books. Just one of them. Tell me the theme of even one of the books of the Bible. You know how many $20 I've given away? None. Because they haven't really read the Bible. And if they have read the Bible, they certainly did it, didn't read it with a view towards understanding and, and believing the content. At an evangelical celebration, the gospel of Jesus Christ, they wrote, We affirm that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, John 1.14. The virgin born descendant of David, Romans 1.3. He had a true human nature, was subject to the law of God, Galatians 4.5. He was like us in all points except without sin, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7. Chapter 7, verse 26. The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't a matter of speculation or ambiguity. The false teacher questions and then breaks with the revelation of God concerning Jesus, the gospel and salvation by faith. The false teacher then invents their own narrative to suit themselves. The false teacher's opinion will at that point have to become equal with scripture or even exceed the authority of the scripture, the false teacher will present a false view of God and a false view of salvation and a false view of Jesus. And if a person has a false view of God and a false view of Jesus and a false view of salvation, you can guarantee that this is a false teacher. But then Paul doesn't stay there. And the next thing that he says is so pointed and so blunt that I would be reluctant to say it in public. But because it's so here in the scripture, I'm just going to repeat what he said. He talks about the false teacher's toxic character. Look what he says in verse 4. He is proud, knowing nothing but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy and strife and reviling and evil suspicions. Again, pause for just a moment as you're thinking about it. He's identified who the false teacher is. It's the person who has a wrong view of God, a wrong view of Jesus, a wrong view of salvation. He is proud. And here, it isn't just morally corrupt in the sense of pride. It's something even more. False teachers often appear confident and knowledgeable. Maybe you've met someone exactly like, he seems to know the Bible cover to cover. He quotes chapter and verse. And, and so the Jehovah's Witness or the Mormon who shows up on your doorstep and begins to talk about these particular verses or these particular passages or their particular teachings seem to know a lot. How can they speak with such 
confidence. Paul says they're proud. He doesn't say that they know a lot. He says they know nothing. Has he overstated his case? I don't think so. Clearly, the false teacher knows something. The point that Paul is making is that they don't know what's really important, what really matters, what's really true. Paul's words aren't flattering, and they're not compromising. Paul tells Timothy that Timothy's teaching should be Love from a pure heart. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, when Paul speaks to Timothy, he says, you should love from a pure heart. You should love from a pure heart with a good conscience and with sincere faith. Contrast what Paul says to the true teacher. Pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. To the false teacher, proud, knowing nothing, Obsessed with disputes and arguments. The false teacher has an exaggerated sense of their own importance. And this becomes an important point for each and every one of us to remember. The false teacher will always find a way to diminish God and elevate man. They'll find a way to make God smaller than he is, according to the Bible. And then they'll find a way to make themselves larger than the Bible gives them credit for. So the false teacher is proud, conceited, puffed up, and their conceit proves that they know nothing. Now remember in chapter 1, verse 7, the false teacher desperately wanted to be a teacher of the law, but they were without understanding, Paul wrote, of the law. The false teachers teach contrary to the scripture, contrary to Christ. And because they teach contrary to the scripture and teach contrary to Christ, they therefore have to draw their own conclusions based on their own false opinions about what they're reading. And so Paul says, not that you should be proud of that, but that you should be ashamed of that. Paul's comments prove the false teacher shouldn't glory in their false teaching, but they should be ashamed of their false teaching. The false teacher's caught up in controversy, in disputes, in myths, endless genealogies in chapter 1, verse 4, meaningless talk, chapter 1, verse 6. They promote speculation. They promote endless arguments. They promote ideas that have nothing to do with the Scripture. And the word obsessed is very interesting. It translates the Greek word noseo. The reason why this word is important, it appears only here in the Greek New Testament and nowhere else. The King James Version translates this word doting. Most of you are way too young to remember that word, doting. 
when someone is referred to as being a doting person, it literally means to be sick. In classical Greek, it was used metaphorically to describe people under mental and emotional duress. It even came probably to push the envelope towards mental illness. Thayer, the Greek scholar, says here it means to be taken with such an interest in a thing that it amounts to a morbid fascination, almost like a disease. This week I was reading about a woman who lived in Memphis, Tennessee. She moved from New Orleans where I, where I was born and, and spent some of my life. And she moved from New Orleans to Memphis, Tennessee because she was obsessed with Elvis. She saw Kid Creel 120 times. She saw Jailhouse Rock 99 times. She had a life-size poster of Elvis. She had literally tens of thousands of stuff that were related to Elvis. She was obsessed with Elvis. This is what, this is what that word means. It's a morbid craving. One Bible scholar says... His disease is intellectual curiosity about trifles. In other words, this, this false teacher seems to be, have this obsession with things that don't matter. Well, you know, I think that the Antichrist is Charles of England. I had a guy wanting to be on the radio program. He was convinced that, that Charles was the Antichrist. And I called him back and I said, when Princess Diana divorced him, I go, hey, you know, if you were married to the Antichrist, would you divorce him? There's another person who believes that Putin is the Antichrist. Since I've become a Christian in 1973, I can name at least 20 people that people were convinced, were absolutely convinced was the Antichrist of the Bible. Does the Bible teach that an Antichrist is going to come? Yes. Should your whole life be devoted to trying to discover his identity? Think about how sick that is. So tell me what you did today. I searched the internet to find proof that this person's the Antichrist. What else did you do? Watch the Bronco game. Okay, so this is your life. You search for the Broncos, and then, or you search for the Antichrist, and then you watch the Bronco game. The false teacher has an intense preoccupation with controversy, disputes, arguments over words. And again, once again, the original language uses a compound word that is so meaningful, logo, machias. Again, only here in the New Testament, the Greek New Testament, is this particular word used. But he combines the two words in such a way to give us a picture that is powerful. The picture is word battles. Have you ever had a war of words with someone? You're fighting back and forth with words. The New American Standard translates this, quote, he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words. 
but it's almost combative. This isn't scholarship. This isn't precision. This isn't an attempt to be precise or scholastic. This is an attempt to justify bad teaching and bad living by twisting the words and perverting the words. So the false teacher loves to split hairs and then split churches. You know what? We're passionate about the truth. We care about the truth. We care about what the Bible says about the truth. Defending the truth can lead to controversy. But that's not who Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about people who love to defend the truth. He's talking about people who will fight tooth and nail to promote a lie. No wonder Walter Martin years ago, speaking of the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons who would come to our doorsteps would say, they're willing to do for a lie what most Christians aren't willing to do for the truth. The false teacher delights in ambiguity. The false teacher likes to distort what the Bible makes clear. And so what does the Bible make clear? The nature of God. God is a singular God. There's not two gods or three gods or no God. The Bible teaches that the God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there's one singular God who is distinct in identity as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Bible affirms itself as inspired and trustworthy. The Bible affirms, again, the deity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Bible affirms that God became a man in the person of Jesus. The Bible affirms that Jesus died on a cross for sin, not a stake, that he really died. That he rose from the dead, not as a gaseous spirit like the Jehovah's Witnesses say, but in a real body, the same body that he died in, he rose from the dead in. He rose bodily, physically, and he died on the cross as an act of love for you and for me. The Bible affirms that Jesus was buried in a real grave. And that he rose bodily, physically, literally. And that he's alive at this very moment. And that he's the living Lord of the universe. The Bible teaches that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. The Bible teaches that we're sinners by nature and by choice. In Romans 3.23, in the most plain and unambiguous language possible, Paul writes... All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. The Bible teaches that man needs a sinner, that man, man needs a savior, that sin separates us from God, and that sinful human beings are justified by faith alone in Jesus alone. The Bible teaches that there is no other source for salvation. 
The Bible teaches in the most unambiguous way possible. There is no other name given under heaven whereby people must be saved. The believer is able to live to the glory of God by virtue of the presence of the indwelling Christ. The Bible makes it clear that not only are you saved by grace, but that you're kept by grace and that Paul will later write, if any person's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, everything has become new. We're alive in Jesus. And that Jesus is going to come with power and great glory. He will judge the living and the dead. The Bible teaches in the most unambiguous way possible that all human beings are accountable to God. And Jesus warns about majoring on minor issues. And minoring on major issues. In Matthew 23, he says, blind guides, you who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence, blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Jesus makes it abundantly clear, you focus on the outside and ignore the inside. All of these truths are undeniable and irrevocable. The exact definition of the gospel is given by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4 where Paul writes, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now imagine a person says to you, there's no such thing as sin. Sin's not real. Sin is a construct that people make up and that religion has foisted upon you to manipulate you, to get you to do what religious people want you to do. And you say to them, you know, the Bible says that there's a holy and a just God who made us and who created us and gave us instructions on how we should live and that when we disobey him, that that's sin. He's revealed to us what constitutes appropriate behavior and what constitutes inappropriate behavior. The Bible is clear about the nature of God, about the identity of Jesus about the gospel and the need for all human beings to be saved. So what happens when people abandon sound doctrine? What happens when people feed on a regular diet of strife, disputes, arguments? What happens when people preoccupy themselves with empty questions? And the meaning of words. Paul writes, this all leads to envy, strife, reviling. And in case you don't know what the word reviling means, it means to use the popular vernacular. It means yelling and screaming at each other. It means saying horrible things to one another. And evil suspicions. So what does the false teacher generate? Turmoil. What does the false teacher generate? 
drama. And you know where they do it? Sometimes in churches. Sometimes on TV. Sometimes on the radio. In verse 5 it says, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth. The false teacher makes it a point to elevate intellect over revelation. Useless wranglings of men. This doesn't say the revelation of God in Christ. It says useless wranglings of men. So now we know what the source of the disputes are. Of corrupt minds, not wholesome minds. So the false teacher and the false teaching will eventually distort, corrupt, pollute your brain. The truth is at first compromised, then corrupted, then concealed. Look what it says. And they are destitute of the truth. Do you know what the word destitute means? It's a word that means utterly deprived. If you drove to the church and you're going down Wadsworth or you're going somewhere or you're going somewhere else and a person's holding up a sign and they say, I'm destitute. I don't have anything. I have nothing. The word destitute means an utter deprivation of that which is valuable. So in this instance, it means an utter deprivation of the truth. Like a person who's denied adequate food or water or nutrients. A healthy body will quickly deteriorate. And you see, this is what makes... So, so there's two kinds of false teachers. The false teacher who is utterly false and obviously false... And the false teacher who is partially true says valuable things, important things, even truthful things, and then just puts in just enough lies to deceive you. Which do you think is the most dangerous? The devil with the mask on or the devil with the mask off? The one with the mask off is obvious. The one who's wearing the mask on, this is the one who can do the most harm. You see, the most harmful false teacher is the one who orders his or her teaching to make it look the most like truth. But once you're starved for the truth, once you reject the truth, once you deprive people of the truth, they become starved. They become starved for something real and something meaningful in their lives. False teachers deprive people of the truth. And since they can't tolerate the truth of the gospel, and since they can't tolerate the truth about Jesus, then they'll make up their own agenda, their own truth. Paul knows the truth. Paul knows that the evidence of sin in the life of the false teacher is the evidence of the lack of love in the false teacher's life. And he knows that the false teacher loves darkness. 
So a person who's determined to live an immoral life or a self-centered life or a self-indulgent life who says, in order for me to live the kind of life that I want to live, that focuses on me, they'll abandon the gospel. They'll abandon the Bible. They'll abandon the truth. And one of the major reasons why people reject Christ and the gospel is because it reveals their heart and their life and their need for a savior. So the false teacher is willing to use subterfuge and deceit and subversion to accomplish their goals. And Paul is no, no stranger to the many false teachers who've led people away. They've led them away from Christ. And so think about what they're doing. They begin by leading people away from Christ. And then they lead people away from grace. And then they lead people away from the truth. And so the false teachers perverse preoccupation than with profit. At the end of verse 5, look what it says. Who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. Paul comment leads us to believe that some of these false teachers literally were in it for the money. Could it be that this is the genesis of the prosperity gospel? Where people say, you know, the God of the Bible wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. In other words, they suppose that godliness is a means of gain. That the true person who loves the Lord and is loved by the Lord will never experience pain, never experience suffering, will never experience deprivation or poverty or difficulty. What does Paul mean? Godliness is a means of gain. What do you think it means? Do you think Paul is saying, does wealth in and of itself produce godly character? What do you think the answer is? If that were true, then the richest people you know would be the godliest people you know. Does wealth ensure character? It doesn't. Could it be that the false teachers not only abandon biblical truth, they don't endure sound doctrine we already discover, they give people what they want. Itching ears. They're willing to scratch and itch. In other words, the false teacher doesn't give you what you need, but what you want. What is it that you need? You need hope. You need forgiveness of sin. You need a savior. You need to know that you're cleansed. You need to know that you have a right relationship with God. You need to know that heaven is your ultimate destination. You need to have assurance and peace with God and hope. What do you want? I want unlimited health and unlimited wealth and prosperity. I want people to love me and care about me. I want to have my best life now. I want to turn this frown upside down. The false teacher isn't exactly interested in giving you what you need. 
but in giving you what you want. The gospel of Jesus Christ is designed to give us what we need. Forgiveness of sin, hope, a right relationship with God. But I want to see angels. I want to see gold dust and glitter fall from heaven. I want my leg to grow. That's actually not what the Bible teaches. The de- and so Paul will later write in Titus chapter 3, verse 10, reject the device of man after the first and the second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. False teachers divide people and then they divide the church. And most false teachers don't want to abandon the happy hunting ground the church. And so they pretend to come into a church to honor the church's leaders or honor the Bible. But then they find a way to create drama and promote controversy, all the while claiming to exercise the biblical gift of discernment. The divisive person creates factions and splits and divisions in the body of Christ. The divisive person, according to Paul, is denied membership in the church. John Flavel wrote, quote, By entertaining of strange persons, men sometimes entertain angels unawares, but by entertaining of strange doctrines, many have entertained devils unaware. So when are Christians most vulnerable to the twisted versions of Christ and Christianity offered by the false teachers? It's usually when they're young and they've never read the Bible. And they're not aware of the essentials of Christianity. And look, look what it says at the end of verse 5. From such, withdraw yourself. Does it say stay with them? Eat with them? Sleep with them? Watch them on TV? Give money to them? So why do we avoid the false teacher? False teachers are deceptive. False teachers are dangerous. False teachers are divisive. False teachers give people not what they need, but what they want. False teachers aren't innocent. False teachers will abandon the true teaching about Jesus and grace and salvation. Remember what their goal is. They want to change your mind about God and about Jesus, and about salvation, and about grace. Because they know that if they could change your mind about God, if they can change your mind about Jesus, if they can change your mind about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then they're able to persuade you to go with them. The person trapped in a cult will often wonder what exactly they have to do to make God happy. You see, the next person who comes knocking at your door and says they're a Jehovah's Witness or they're with the Watchtower and Tract Society, I'm going to encourage you to ask them a question. As scary as that might be. Ask them. How, am I, how is a person saved according to your belief? 
Well, you have to believe in Jesus. What else? The Bible. What else? Everything my false prophet has written. What else? You have to go door to door. What else? You have to give a certain amount of money. What else? What else? What else? What else? What else? Just keep asking them, what else? Because guess what? The false teacher has taught them well about ambiguity and uncertainty of whether or not they can ever be in a place of health. And of course, the false teacher will make himself or herself the authority of last resort. And since the Bible is the source of truth, it makes perfect sense that the false teacher will introduce doubt about the Bible or disagreement about the Bible or revelation about the Bible. The false teacher will offer a substitute, and usually the false teacher will offer himself. So if a person offers you a false view of God and a false view of Jesus and a false view of salvation... Make no mistake about it. They'll also invite you to live in such a way to satisfy yourself and watch out for yourself and take care of yourself. This is why one-third of the New Testament Gospels are devoted to the last week of Jesus' life, to his going to a cross, to die for your sins, and to rise from the dead for your justification. We're going to have communion in just a minute, and I hope all of you have got your elements so we can take them together. But um, I want you to take a moment and reflect on what the true gospel says about the real Jesus, not the new age Jesus, not the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses who is the Archangel Michael, not the Jesus of the Mormons who's the spirit brother of Lucifer, not the Jesus of the Hindus who is an ascended master or an avatar, Not the Jesus of Islam, which just says that he's one prophet among many prophets. But the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus who comes. The Jesus who dies the death that you deserve for the sin that you've committed. You see, the Bible will constantly, constantly point us back to the reality that we're sinners in need of a Savior. And it's interesting to me how our unbelieving family and our unbelieving friends are sometimes put off by that. You Christians, you think you're so good. You make it sound like nobody's good except you. What's our answer? The Bible says there's none good. There's none who do good. There's none righteous. No, not one. I'm not claiming to be something that I'm not. Well, I'm a good person. I know that's probably why you're not a good candidate for salvation. Jesus didn't come to save good people. Jesus came to save sinners, people who have offended God, people who want to be forgiven by God, and then have a right relationship with God. 
And so when remember, when we take these elements, just like the Bible says, it says on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take this and eat it. All of you, this is my body which will be given for you. The Bible says again, he gave thanks and praise and he took the cup and he said, take this and drink it, all of you. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant which will be shed for the forgiveness of sins. It doesn't make sense that we would take this bread or we would drink this cup unless we thought this is exactly what we need. We need a savior. We need a deliverer. We need someone who will take our sin away from us and then replace it with his own righteousness and give us peace and grace and mercy and hope. That's who the real Jesus is in the Bible. And as I'm fond of saying, if you're wrong about Jesus, it doesn't really matter what you're right about. This is something you can't get wrong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, for the person who's listening to me right now, and they believe with all of their heart that Jesus is the Savior. Lord, I pray that you would look deep into their heart and their, their spiritual condition. And Lord, that if they would ask themselves that simple question, do, you, do I believe that Jesus is the Lord? And if the answer is yes, then what would prevent you from saying, Lord Jesus, I want you to forgive me of my sin. I want you to cleanse my heart. I want you to come into my life and I want you to make me new. And for the Christian who wants to renew and experience strength for a new day and hope for a new tomorrow, Lord, I pray that by partaking of these elements, you would strengthen him or her for the task at hand to remind a watching world about the nature of the true God, about the reality of a real Savior and about how salvation can be had by grace alone through faith, by trusting in what Jesus has done. And so, Lord, again, I pray for the unbeliever that you would convict them of their sin and offer Jesus as the Savior. And for the believer that we could once again participate and partake and identify ourselves with his life, with his death, and his resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake together. You can remain seated. We're going to go ahead and sing. Ever come close, nothing can compare.